It is a fascinating privilege to consider and study the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It's impossible to exhaust it, by the way. I'm convinced of that after years and years and years of looking at all the Gospels. The Gospel writers each give us a unique picture of what Jesus did and what he said. The full picture is seen in the combination of all four Gospel accounts. That's the full picture, but it's not the total picture. What I mean is, we know that Jesus did many more things than what we have recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He did so many things that John 21-25 says, using probably some hyperbole, but hyperbole to make the point. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's a reminder that we are not told everything in any one gospel account, and we are not even told everything when you put all four of the accounts together. But we are certainly told a lot. And what we are told is captivating. It is is like looking at a rare gem or a rare stone that no matter which angle you view it from, there's always some aspect of brilliance. In this message, we want to look at the amazing story recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 2. So please turn with me to John, chapter 2, if you aren't already there. And please follow along as I read the text that we're going to consider. John, chapter 2, verse 12, John tells us, After this he... The he, of course, a reference to Jesus. The after this, a reference to his first miracle, changing water into wine in Cana of Galilee. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will eat me up. So the Jews answered and said to Jesus, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Keep in mind that the events of John 1 through 5 are events that are unique to the gospel of John. What I mean is none of the other gospel writers tell us anything about the early ministry of Jesus. But in the first five chapters of John, we are told about 
the first year of Jesus' ministry. We are given a sampling. We are given uh, an overview. We are just given some glimpses of that first year. None of the other gospel writers cover these events or even mention them. Only John. As I've said in the past, if it weren't for John's gospel, if we only had the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then the best we could do in piecing together the ministry of Jesus would be to come up with about a two-year ministry. But we know because of John that Jesus' ministry was three to three and a half years in length. But none of the other gospel writers cover these events or even mention them, only John. Now, if you're a sharp thinker, you might be asking yourself the question, hold it. Don't Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, mention the cleansing of the temple? The answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell about the cleansing of the temple. No, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not cover this incident that we just read about here in John 2. Let me explain. As you begin to compare and parallel the different gospel accounts, it becomes very clear that Jesus cleansed the, cleansed the temple on two different occasions. He did so right near the beginning of his ministry here in John 2, and he did so right near the end of his ministry as is recorded in the three synoptic gospels. There are at least a couple reasons why we know this. First of all, the chronology of the gospel records reveals this fact. As I mentioned just a moment ago, in John 1 through 5, the Apostle John describes the first year of the ministry of Jesus, but the other three gospel writers place the cleansing of the temple just a few days before the death of Jesus. Now, if Jesus cleansed the temple in the early days of his ministry, and he also cleansed it a few days before his death, then we know there had to have been two cleansings of the temple. A second reason why we know this to be so is by the descriptions in the different gospel accounts. If you compare them closely, just place them side by side and read them, you will find that John's record of the cleansing of the temple differs substantially from the three synoptic gospels. John's record of this incident is, what word should I use, milder than Matthew's, Mark's, and Luke's account. However, that's no problem if you realize that in John we have the record of the first cleansing of the temple early in Jesus' ministry. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke we have the record of the second cleansing of the temple near the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was far more harsh the second time he cleansed the temple. So the point is this. The cleansing of the temple recorded here in John 2 is a different event than the cleansing of the temple recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. John deals with the first cleansing of the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the second cleansing of the temple. John wrote his gospel much later. He in all likelihood had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knew what they covered. He knew what they wrote about. He knew what they recorded. And he chose not to go over all the same material. He chose to supplement the other gospels. And thus he gives us the only account of the first cleansing of the temple. The first cleansing of the temple angered the Jewish religious leaders. The second cleansing of the temple infuriated them to the point of planning the murder of Jesus. The first cleansing of the temple started the ministry of Jesus. 
down in Jerusalem. The second cleansing of the temple ended the ministry of Jesus because it leads to his death just a few days later. You could almost say it this way, that the cleansings, the two cleansings of the temple were sort of the bookends of Jesus' ministry. He cleansed the temple right near the beginning to state that he would not tolerate this being done to God's house. And basically the Jewish leader said, if you ever do that again, we'll kill you. And he did it again at the end of his ministry, and they killed him just a few days later. Before we look at the first cleansing of the temple here in John 2, let's briefly look at the second cleansing of the temple as recorded in a couple of the the synoptic gospels. Go back to Mark 11 for just a second. Mark chapter 11. And in verse 15, Mark gives us this record. Mark eleven fifteen. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, this was the last straw. This was the second time Jesus cleansed the temple. And the Jewish leaders were not going to put up with Jesus any longer. And frankly, it didn't take them very long to destroy him. Interesting that this is the, march, the, the, the term that Mark uses. They sought how they might destroy him. And as we read earlier in John 2, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They plotted to murder him, and they carried it out just a few days later. Matthew tells us about this event in a more abbreviated form, but he has a little interesting take on it or or perspective. Go to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now the reason why I had us turn to Matthew's account is because it's interesting to me to note that here in chapter 21, Jesus still refers to the temple as God's house. You see that? My house, quoting, quoting from Scripture, My house, God saying, My house shall be called house of prayer. So this is chapter 21. This is still God's house. But by the time you get to chapter 23, only two chapters later, God has moved out. He he no longer sees it at his house, as his house. Let, Let me show what I mean. Look at chapter 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, behold, look at this, your house is left to you desolate. Your house. 
Jesus cleansed the temple in an attempt to reestablish it as God's house. But since the Jewish leaders didn't want that, God simply moved out. The glory departed. In essence, God said, you can have it. Your house is left to you desolate. God moved out, and the Jewish religious leaders didn't even care. Not only did they not care, a few days later they murdered the perfect, sinless Son of God, Son of Man. And, in addition, they continued to carry out their sacrifices for almost another 40 years until finally God put an end to the whole thing through the hand of the Romans, his rod of judgment. Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, the temple destroyed, and God put an end to the whole temple system for the Jewish people. So the cleansing of the temple the second time took place near the end of the ministry of Jesus, as we've just seen in Mark and Matthew's accounts. But in this message, we want to consider the first cleansing of the temple recorded for us in John chapter 2. So let's go back to our text there to John chapter 2. Just before jumping into the text, let's acquaint ourselves with the chronology of the early days of Jesus' ministry. As I've already mentioned, none of the other gospel writers give us this, only John. So it's important for us to have a handle on it, to, to at least uh, have somewhat of a, an understanding of the chronology. The ministry of Jesus technically began, you, you could say this, that the public ministry of Jesus began when John the baptizer baptized Jesus. That's when the heavens were opened, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son. That sort of inaugurated the public ministry of Jesus. Then we are told Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tested. From there, having passed all the tests, Jesus went back to Perea, which was the location of John the baptizer's ministry. It was there Jesus acquired some of his disciples. And that's where John picks up the story in chapter 1, verse 19. From 1, 19 through chapter 2, verse 11, John, interestingly, records a week in the life of Jesus. One week. That week culminates at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It was there Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine, And that's recorded for us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, just prior to the text we're going to consider in this message. It is really fascinating, to me at least, to contemplate the time elements in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, 19 through 2, 11, as I said, is one week. Chapters 1 through 5 cover approximately one year. Chapter 6, now listen to this closely, Chapter 6 of John's Gospel is pulled from a two-year ministry period of Jesus. In other words, a whole two-year great Galilean ministry of Jesus, which is emphasized primarily in Matthew. Out of that long, huge two-year stretch of time, John pulls one event. John chapter 6. Only one chapter out of two years. Chapters 12 through 20 cover just 16 days. And then chapters 13 through 19 cover just 24 hours. Let that thought sink in. One third of the entire Gospel of John, 
deals with only 24 hours in the life of Jesus. One-third of John's gospel devoted to 24 hours. In this message, as we come to chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, we are looking at an event that took place about six months after Jesus' baptism and three months after Jesus had acquired his first disciple. So all that is background to the text, and let's jump into it, beginning in verse 12. John tells us, After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. The hometown of Jesus, as you probably know, was actually Nazareth. That's where his parents were from. That's where Mary was when she received the angelic announcement of the virgin birth. That's where Jesus eventually was brought as a child. He grew up there. He was raised there. That was his hometown. But, as John mentions here, he ended up using Capernaum as his home base for ministry. And that is probably why John mentions this important detail. Jesus has relocated. It's very likely that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum to be closer to his disciples. Now we also know from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, that a major event that prompted this was when he went back home to Nazareth and presented himself as a Messiah. They tried to murder him by pushing him off the cliff on which their town was built. So that rejection prompted him, and in addition to the disciples being there, to move his headquarters to Capernaum. That way, the disciples wouldn't have to forsake their homes for a while. Most of the disciples lived near Capernaum. So John is telling us here in verse 12 that after his first miracle, Jesus moved his headquarters to Capernaum. I smile when I read in verse 12, John saying that Jesus went down to Capernaum from Nazareth. If you look on a map, actually Capernaum is about 20 miles northeast of Cana, but there is a decline in elevation, and that is why verse 13 is worded this way. When the biblical writers refer to geography, they don't usually refer to it the way we do. North up, south is down, etc. They, they think of topography. Going up, you go higher. Going down, you go lower. We'll see it again in the text in just a little bit. Notice who went with Jesus. His mother, brothers, and disciples. The brothers mentioned here would have been subsequent children born to Joseph and Mary. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, as some would claim. Joseph and Mary had children. All four gospel writers mention this. Let me just show you one example. Go back to Mark again, chapter 6, and notice how Mark chapter 6 opens. It says, Then Jesus went out from there, reading in Mark 6, 1, and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. She was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. But afterwards, she and Joseph had sexual relations as husband and wife and produced other children. And in fact, 
With that in mind, Matthew's wording makes sense when he says in Matthew 1.24, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until, did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. So after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had children. That's what John 2.12 is talking about when it refers to the brothers of Jesus. By the way, did you notice that there in Mark 6 where I read and also in our text in John 2, Joseph is not mentioned? He was also absent from the wedding feast in the earlier verses of chapter 2. It is very likely, we can't say dogmatically, very likely Joseph died before Jesus turned 30. He is not mentioned in the Gospels after being alive, other than like another occasion, isn't this not Joseph's son? Uh, But he's not mentioned alive, present at anything, uh, after the early days of Jesus, his birth and childhood and all of that, but not later. Not mentioned in the Gospels. That would explain why at the end of Jesus' life, he entrusted Mary to the care of John. Whatever the case, Joseph is not mentioned in John 2.12 when Jesus went to Capernaum. From the best we can tell, Jesus was there about three months when the Passover came around. That's why John 2.12 says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So three months, approximately three months go by, and then verse 13 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was the greatest of all the Jewish feasts. About two and a half million Jews traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the grace of God in the exodus from Egypt. In fact, by Jewish law, every male within 15 miles of Jerusalem was was required to go to the city for the celebration. So this was a key time for Jesus to break on the scene in Jerusalem. Passover. And notice again, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that verse 13 says Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, the issue is not direction. Jerusalem is actually south of Capernaum, south of Galilee, but it sits up on a hill, and the Jews saw Jerusalem as the great spiritual mountain. So regardless of where you are in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. If you come from the east, you go up. You go from the west, from the south, even from the north, even though the north, it's uh, closer to uh, the same height coming from the north. But still, you go up to Jerusalem, regardless of which way you approach the city. So Jesus made this journey at Passover to break onto the religious scene at Jerusalem. Interestingly, three years later, to the day, Jesus would be killed on Passover. Three years later. Verse 14 begins to tell us of the events that set all of that in motion. Verse 14, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Since we obviously live in a different era, it may be difficult for, for us to relate to what's going on here. Whenever the Jews went up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they offered sacrifices. Not only that, every Jew over 19 was required to pay a temple tax. Therefore, this service 
<clears throat> that John mentions here, this service was set up to assist the travelers. The sale of cattle and doves and the privilege of exchanging money were permitted in the temple court as a convenience for pilgrims who would need animals for sacrifice and temple shekels for their dues. So the animals and money changing weren't really the problem. Okay, understand that. That wasn't the issue. It was the corruption of these things that angered Jesus. Now the reason I want to emphasize this, one is I want us to understand Scripture. That's first and foremost. But I've lost track of the number of times through the years where Christians get upset because maybe something is happening at church where... You know, things are, you know, people are buying resources at a resource center or they're buying tickets to, you know, a Christian play. And inevitably, you'll hear some Christians say, oh, we're going right back to the days of Jesus cleansing the temple where business is going on in the church. Listen, that wasn't the issue. It wasn't the issue. This was set up. It was permitted. It was set up as a convenience. It was actually supposed to help people. It was the corruption of this that angered Jesus. Listen as one man describes the circumstances. I quote, Every Jew over 19 was required to pay a temple tax, which could only be paid in Galilean or sanctuary shekels. Hence, the need for money changers. The corruption, however, was not in the system, but in the exorbitant rate these unscrupulous financiers charged. Adding to the corruption was the way sacrifices were approved. A fee was charged to inspect all animals brought to the temple for sacrifice. Most of the time, the inspectors found the animal blemished in some way, disqualifying it as a legitimate offering. This forced the out-of-town traveler to purchase one of the approved animals at the temple for often, catch this, 10 to 20 times the fair market value. No wonder Christ was enraged. William Barclay described it this way. What enraged Jesus was that pilgrims to the Passover who could ill afford it were being fleeced at an exorbitant rate by the money changers. It was a rampant and shameful or shameless social injustice. And what was worse, it was being done in the name of religion. In other words, the people who came here were stuck. They brought an animal, and if the people in charge said, oh, no, not approved, they're stuck. they got to get an animal for sacrifice. Oh, but we happen to have one right over here at 20 times the price. That's, that was the problem. Sacrificial animals were being sold as a cover-up to make money. People have always used religion to make money, but Jesus was not going to allow this to go on in the temple. So verse 15 tells us, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Even though it's not explicitly stated, it seems clear that Jesus is extremely angry at this point. Not out of control, but angry. The English text, the way mine reads, and the Greek text also seems to indicate that the whip was not only used for the animals, but also for the people to drive them out. He literally drove them out. Verse 16, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house 
a house of merchandise. You know, this should not have surprised the Jewish leaders. If they had only known their scriptures better, they would have realized just who it was doing these things. If they had known their own prophets, Malachi had predicted one who would suddenly come to the temple to purify the religion of the nation. Let me show you this. Go back to the the book just prior to Matthew, which is Malachi, the last book in our English versions of Scripture. And the reason I say English in the Hebrew Bible, Malachi is not their last book. They have the same books we have. They just don't have them in the same orders. But in our English Bibles, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture. And notice chapter 3. Chapter opens with a prediction of the ministry of John the baptizer, the forerunner, the messenger. And notice after that it transitions to the Messiah himself. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Malachi predicted the coming of the Messiah who would come suddenly to the temple to refine. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. He occurred, he appeared suddenly unexpectedly, and he came there to refine. Jesus was fulfilling this passage when he cleansed the temple. And when the the disciples saw Jesus driving out these animals, they began to remember the Scripture. Go back to John 2 to see this, back into the New Testament. Notice what it says in verse 17. John adds this comment. He says in verse 17, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will eat me up. That verse is found in Psalm 69.9. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. And the disciples realized that Jesus was the one that the psalm had in mind. This would have further convinced the disciples that Jesus was truly the Messiah. By the way, the best translation of verse 17, because I know all of our English translations aren't exactly the same, best translation is, zeal for your house will eat me up, or zeal for your house will consume me. It's a future tense, but listen to this. It is not referring to something internal. When we hear the phrase, eat me up, we think of something that gnaws at us internally, you know, that type. It's not the idea. This is something external. Zeal for your house is going to consume me. In other words, verse 17 is saying, let me just put it this way, zeal for your house is eventually going to get me in trouble. It's going to consume me. My zeal for your house, that's the idea. And this is exactly what we saw earlier in Mark 11. The zeal for God's house eventually led to the death of Jesus. And what John is telling us here, when this began to unfold, and they saw Jesus doing what he's doing, they thought, he's going to get himself killed. And they remembered this verse, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house is going to eat me up. It's It's going to end my life. They realized, you know, if Jesus does this again... They won't put up with it. And that's exactly what happened. 
And in verse 18, so the Jews, by the way, John uses the term the Jews to not, not to refer to just Jewish people in general. If you take that term throughout his gospel, it is almost always, if not always, a reference to the Jewish leaders. So just think when you see that, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, etc. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? The Jews were always looking for a sign from Jesus. It starts here. It goes throughout his ministry. And the amazing thing about it was that no matter how many miracles Jesus performed, they still never believed. It didn't matter how many signs he gave them. Let me just show you a sampling, maybe just two, two or three. Go back to Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 38 Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, understand, Matthew 12 is a long ways into the ministry of Jesus. He has performed, and it wouldn't be, you know, an exaggeration to say countless signs by this point. And they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is the same chapter in which the Pharisees commit the unpardonable sin. And here Jesus is basically saying, you know what? I've given you ample signs. You won't hear the evidence. You're getting no more signs. No more except one. And the only other sign is just as the, the sign of the prophet Jonah, namely the resurrection. Look at the next gospel, Mark chapter 8. Notice another account along these lines. Mark chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now notice this. This is such a remarkable insight into our Lord. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Surely, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them. And getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Is that John tells us in his gospel that he specifically wrote his gospel to include signs so that people would believe. So again, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with Jesus giving a sign. Because he graciously gave many signs. The problem here is, and the reason Jesus responded this way and sighed in his, in his spirit and was dis, distraught or, or disillusioned, if you want to use that word, with them, is because he had given them so many signs and they ignored them. They wouldn't believe them. So it got to the point where, again, he said, I say to you, no sign shall be given this generation. Or you could say, no more signs. That's it. You've had all the evidence you need. It's just willful unbelief. No more signs. And then skip over to John 6. John 6. This is the one chapter I mentioned earlier that's pulled out of the two-year ministry of Jesus, the great Galilean ministry. The one chapter that John gives to that is chapter 6. And in verse 30, this is after Jesus had walked on water and multiplied bread, fed the 5,000. In verse 30, therefore they said to him, again, keep in mind the context. What did I just say? 
He multiplied bread for maybe 20,000 people out of five loaves and two fish. He walked on the water. And then they have the audacity in verse 30 to say this. They said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? You've got to be kidding. They're not going to believe him. What? Are you kidding me? What sign are you going to perform that we may believe you? What work will you do? The Jews were never satisfied. They always wanted more signs. As 1 Corinthians one twenty two puts it, Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. We see this right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in John 2. When after the miracle of turning water into wine and cleansing the temple, they demand a sign. Now go back to our text there in chapter 2. So in verse 18, the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We know from verse 21, and you know, this is a familiar passage, so you know that Jesus is speaking of the resurrection of his body when he says that. But to the Jews, this was an absolutely ludicrous statement. Verse 20, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They were right. The temple had been under construction. Now, that may confuse you. You say, hold it. The temple under, I thought, you know, there was Solomon's temple, and then when Zerubbabel led the people back after the captivity, there was a temple. So is this a third temple? No. The the construction they're talking about is is Herod's beautification of the temple. The temple compound, the, the temple mound, and all of that. There was a temple building there already. And in fact, if you remember the story from the Old Testament, when that temple was erected, some of the older people in the crowd began to weep because it was so insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. So Herod took on this huge, massive uh, reconstruction project, uh, partly just to gain favor with the Jews, Jews, but also to make a political statement. And so they're right on. This had been going on for 46 years. If you've ever had done some projects on your house, don't get discouraged. This probably never lasted 46 years. 46 years, and it would be another 30 before completion. Over, catch this, over 18,000 workers were involved in the task. So the people knew this. 18,000 workers, and here's a man saying, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, one guy. 18,000, I mean 18,000 workers over 46 years. You can see why they were amazed. And by the way, the Jewish leaders would never forget this statement. This galled them. I mean, they they would never forget it. They used this statement against Jesus at his trial and crucifixion three years later. Matthew 26, you can either just listen or if you want to turn back, it's up to you. But this is the trial of Jesus the night uh, when he's condemned. Matthew 26, verse 59, we read this. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Of course, that's not exactly what he said, but they never forgot this claim of three days rebuilding the temple. 
Matthew 27, verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him. This is when Jesus was on the cross. They blasphemed him, wagging their heads. You can just see it, shaking their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now let me remind you again, John 2 and Matthew 26, Matthew 27 are three years apart. But the Jews never forgot that statement of Jesus. Now back to John Two as we wind down. So John tells us that Jesus uttered this statement, and then John gives this editorial comment, verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Notice that in verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days, don't miss this, I will raise it up. To me, that is a monumental statement. Jesus had the power to raise himself from the dead. Over in John 10, 18, he, he reemphasized this by saying, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. That's exactly what Jesus was saying here in John 2. And John tells us in verse 22, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Did you catch John's honesty here? He basically says, you know, we we didn't put it all together until after the resurrection. We were right there, but we didn't grasp what he was saying. We didn't get it. Also notice in this verse that John intentionally places scripture and Jesus' words on an equal plane. Notice how he did that? His disciples remembered he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word Jesus had said. When Jesus spoke, his words carried the same authority as Hebrew Scriptures. So what does John give us here in chapter 2 of his Gospel? Two snapshots of our Lord emphasizing two different aspects. In Cana of Galilee, when Jesus turned water into wine, he demonstrated his power as the creator. In Jerusalem, when he cleansed the temple, he demonstrated his authority as the Messiah. Jesus is the creator God, and he's the Messiah. And I ask you in closing, is he your Lord and Savior? Let's bow together in closing. Father, as we look back at this account recorded for us in John's gospel, and we realize that just as John quotes here out of Hebrew scripture, zeal, zeal for your house eventually ate up or consumed Jesus. It destroyed him. It did him in. It was, it was his zeal for your house. He cleansed the temple here at the beginning, cleansed the temple again near the end of his ministry. And from a human standpoint, we understand it was all orchestrated by you, but from a human standpoint, that's what got him killed. 
zeal for your house. Oh, but what a precious testimony to have zeal for your name, zeal for your cause, zeal for your work, zeal for your glory. Oh, that we would live our lives in that same way. So that zeal for, and just fill in the blank, zeal for you and your name and your work would be all-consuming to us. Use the example of your precious Son to encourage us, to challenge us, to refine us as we pray in his blessed name. Amen.